Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garrison from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley. This is Postmortem. On this trip, we're going to take a bit of a diversion off the horror highway. What's great about the nature of podcasting is that we can broaden our scope now and then and engage in conversations with people in the arts who we just find interesting, that our format can be flexible and inclusive. Our guest today is a giant in the field of comedy. We've discussed before how comedy and horror share many traits, even though comedy horror itself can be hit and miss. Horror and comedy both go for a physical response, the laugh and the jump or scream or white-knuckling the arms of your seat. They are genres best shared. Fear and laughter are contagious. What's scary at home alone on your television is a hell of a lot scarier in a crowd. And how often do you laugh aloud when you're watching something funny at home alone? Not nearly as much as in a full cinema. Reactions to fear and laughter are felt as deeply as they are experienced. They are after an active response rather than a passive one. Feel that tension growing in your gut when the horror is really working, and feel that tension completely released when you give way to the laughter evoked by a comedy that is running on all cylinders. Our guest Dave Thomas does it all, although he's probably best known from his years as one of the founding stars and writers of SCTV, the Canadian sketch comedy show that exploded around the world. He's also an accomplished screenwriter and director, as well as the greatest Bob Hope impressionist ever to live. We'll get to know Dave and his work much better after this. Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts like Postmortem. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the original run of Fangoria magazine. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic and Puppet Master The Littlest Reich are streaming on Shudder now. And by the way, so is Nightmare Cinema. 
Dave, what was life like as a child? I mean, your your mother was a church organist. <laughs> your father was a Baptist minister who became a philosophy professor, completely at odds with the religious background he started with. So what was life like? Uh, I... I didn't even, I dreamt about show business the same way kids would wish upon a star. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't seem even remotely reasonable to me that I would ever end up doing the things that I dared to dream when I was a kid. And, you know, we were on the move a lot. Um, we left Toronto when I was six. Now I don't have a, I've got the usual, I don't have Bill Cosby's amazing memory of my childhood. <laughs> it was just a few things I remember before six. Well, the less things you have in common with Bill Cosby is the better. Yeah? Although I did do his show, and I had a private dinner with him, and I got to say, he completely left me alone. So, you know, <laughs> go figure, right? Well, that says more <laughs> about him than you. <laughs> so... I left Toronto when I was with the family. I didn't leave alone when I was six. Um, and um, we moved from Toronto to Durham, North Carolina, which was a complete culture shock. By then, my dad was into philosophy, and he had pretty much abandoned the church, except he kept his his thing, his ministerial his accreditation. card yeah. or whatever, mm -hmm. and would preach on Sundays, <clears throat> even when we were in Durham, and we would go to some weird town in, you know, Winston-Salem or some Greensboro or something like that. And, um, and, and you know, my dad would do the Sunday service, and then we'd have a picnic with the people there. And that's where I understood and learned what good southern fried chicken was. <laughs> it was from those church picnics in Durham, North Carolina. But, you know, then... We were there for six years, and um, so I grew up in the South, hmm. and I have a real kind of a affection and emotional attachment to the South. That's interesting because people think of you as a Canadian, Toronto, you identify with that, but most of your formative years were in the Southern U.S. Sure. I mean, get a sick kid from 6 to 12, and you can basically turn him into anything, you know? <laughs> and um, so... And my dad had to do a lot of deprogramming, by the way, from of what I would be taught in school and, you know. Um, well, you went from a metropolitan center to a very conservative area of the country. Yeah. And it was still rural. And there were big four big tobacco factories in the middle of town. And Durham was still a cigarette town at that time. And then there was Duke, this sort of Ivy League school kind of off to the side. And our third grade class went on a tour of the Liggett Myers factory. And I, and I remember at the end of the tour, they gave every kid a carton of cigarettes. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding. <laughs> we went to the Wonder Bread factory, and they gave us little mini loaves of bread. Yeah. You got cigarettes. No. They gave us cartons of cigarettes. Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, that was culture shock, you know. But my mom was working for... Um, uh, the psychology department uh, in at Duke, and my dad was in the philosophy department, and we li we lived in the horrible faculty apartments mm -hmm. directly across from the campus on Markham Road, and this is how terrifying they were. They were these army 
barracks from World War II that had been put up temporarily, and they were still up there oh my in God. 59 when we got there. Oh. And uh, when I came home, when we came home, if we came home late after dark and we turned the light on, cockroaches would just go oh. like crazy in, in between the floorboards. And, Yikes. And so I knew, as a little kid, I was terrified about getting up in the night because I didn't want to step on those <laughs> Crunch. crunchy, hard-shelled <laughs> cockroaches that were all over oh the floor. Oh, my God. Anyway, um, but then there'd be academics coming over, and I would listen in on the conversations that my dad would have with, you know, other people from the philosophy department or people from my from the psychology department. And so, so in the beginning of your life, you were raised religious, but that boomeranged as your father attained a certain kind of enlightenment as a, in philosophy. Yeah, my dad basically got asked to leave his church <laughs> because he had problems with three things, the virgin birth, Christ being the son of God, and then as he said to the deacons, and on a bad day, the big guy himself. So <laughs> That's three big problems. <laughs> that, that's your ticket out of there if you're a Baptist minister. <laughs> so, uh, but he, you know, he, he went on, and the thing I liked about him, and I've tried to do as much of that myself as possible, is just to keep reading, you know, and keep learning. A lot of... A lot of People go to college and then they go, oh, that's it. That's it for reading. I don't mm -hmm. have to read now for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And boy, I didn't even scrape the the <laughs> top of the counter at college. You know what I mean? There's just yeah. so much stuff to learn. And the more I read, the less I know. It's frightening. And so, um, you know, he, my dad went on, uh, he taught Plato and Aristotle and wrote books, Musings on the Minnow, like that <laughs> could even be made light, but <laughs> the title su sort of suggests that you could do Musings, musings on the Minnow and it would be a light, fanciful way through <laughs> some heavy philosophical stuff. But then he, he created a class in the early 70s, I think 70 or 71, um, McMaster, we were back in Canada by this time, and we'd spent a year in Great Britain uh, in between Durham and back to Canada. And um, he, he started a medical ethics class hmm. because he was very interested in finding an application for philosophy in modern life. And he saw they were building a big medical center. It's now a huge research center at McMaster, world-renowned. Um, on the campus. And so he thought, well, there's all these medical students. Maybe some of them will come and take this class. And he dealt with, you know, issues like abortion, euthanasia, the, the, the hot topics that there's kind of arguments on both sides for. But his, his opinion was that the right now the medical practice is kind of caught like a rock in a hard place. And, um, and doesn't have guidelines for making any of the decisions that they're supposed to make. You know? So having an ethical stance behind the decisions that were made. Yeah, like having, having some thought into it before you shoot off your mouth on issues like euthanasia and abortion, genetic engineering, things like that. Mm. So, and it ended up becoming the biggest undergraduate enrollment class. He had 
like 2,000 undergrad students in his class and wow. four theaters going. Holy shit. <coughs> he was only live in one of them. The others were video feeds, you know. Hmm. And your mother working at Duke, she worked in the psychology department where the cards for parapsychology. Dr. Zener's cards, yeah. They, right. They, they were doing Rhine and Zener. There was Dr. Rhine. They're pioneers in paranormal research. And um, she worked for both of those guys. And Dr. Zener's cards, which are those cards they use to check you for ESP ability, with some one card as a circle, one card as a square, one's a triangle, and one's four wavy lines. And they used those cards in Ghostbusters. Right. The Zener cards. Totally un. Danny didn't even. Danny's a friend of mine. Didn't even know that my mom worked for Zener, you know? So. He would have talked to her had he known, oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> your brother became a, a songwriter, a singer-songwriter, yeah. very successful singer-songwriter. Um, you turned to the arts of performing as well. Um, was it something at home? Did Were you encouraged in creative activities by... Your mother was a composer of church music as well as a, a an organ right. organist. Uh, my dad was an unabashed comedy buff. Oh, really? So we always had all the comedy records, and they were vinyl at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Andy Griffiths was a monologist before he did Mayberry. And he did the cow pie uh, routine and all yeah. Of that. Yeah. And he had this one, which we really related to as a family, because we had a... a kind of an adopted uncle named Fred who is a Swedenborgian. Do you know about them? No. Okay, so this is a religion that popped up following the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg. Very bizarre and kind of cultish, but my dad was friends with this guy. He had a lot of strange friends like that, which I loved. And so we would drive, he lived in Fort Lauderdale, so we'd drive down from Durham to Fort Lauderdale, and the only way to go is U.S. Route 1, which in Andy Griffith's monologues was, he'd call it Number One Street. (laughs) And he'd do jokes like, you know, we saw this sign, free picnic tables, one mile. And I said, well, let's stop and get us one. <laughs> and I, we kind of wish we'd waited until we was on the way back, being as they were made of concrete and all. So there were the, these kind of jokes, and my dad loved them. And he had Tom Lehrer records. And, and then the because he was British, my dad was born in Wales. My mother was born in Scotland. He had the goons and Peter Sellers mm. and things like that. So Jonathan Winters, I grew up. You know, listening to these records and watching my dad and his friends laughing their asses off at it, and think, and then learning to imitate some of that stuff. Because we traveled a lot, I got good at dialects mm-hmm. because you'd hear them, you know. And if you have a musical ear at all, and my mother kind of drummed that into us when we were kids, you can get the rhythm of dialects. And you know, there's this guy that taught. Uh, Charlton Heston to do dialects. His name was Robert Easton. Oh, very famous dialectician okay, so, and character actor. Yeah. And Robert Easton, base, his approach to dialects was like kind of woodworking to me. It was like hammering the shit out of something <laughs> that is a song. Mm. And what he didn't get when he was teaching people to do Scottish, he'd just get them to roll their arse. Mm-hmm. That's not Scottish. It's a it's Gaelic. It's a song, mm. <clears throat> and it's like 
are you not going to come over and play today, Dave? It's a wee song and it goes up and down like that. And that's the way Scots talk. And you, if you're not going to do it like that, you're not going to get it right, you know. Yes. And then the Welsh dialects were more... Hello, boy, oh, boy, boy, bark, beautiful to see you. They elongate words, lovely and marvellous, beautiful by that, you know. So there were audio things that I was exposed to as a kid that I didn't know was preparation for doing this in showbiz. As a know. career, yeah. It just was a way to make my dad's smart friends laugh. And, uh, <laughs> And then, you know. When did a life in show business actually seem like a possibility to you? I mean, you started out your career writing advertising copy for McCann Erickson. Right. And Coca-Cola and things like that. But performing came after that, right? Right. I met Marty and Short and Eugene Levy at McMaster at college. Mm -hmm. And Ivan Reitman was at the same school. And uh, he... Those two guys were just fun to be around. Yeah. And we connected right away and made each other laugh. So um, we did some plays, some undergraduate plays together, things like that. Didn't you do Godspell with a right. lot of these people, right? After we graduated, we all graduated around the same time, 1972. Um, Eugene was already in Toronto looking for work, and then they came and started Godspell. And I was not in the first cast that, that mm. was put together, but Eugene got in, Marty got in, and they met Kilda Radner there. She was in the cast. Andrea Mart was in the cast. Um, Paul Schaefer was musical director. And so because I was friends with Marty and Eugene, I started driving into Toronto. So I was doing a master's degree in English Lit at that time because I didn't know what else to do. Mm. Finished... Undergrad, I ended up with uh, a scholarship to go to the same school to do a master's degree. You don't do that, but I, I wasn't a serious academic anyway. It was like, yeah, all right, they're paying me to teach tutorials. It'll get some money. I can pay the rent with that. Meanwhile, my friends are doing what I want to do. Hmm. And then Eugene called me while I was working on the MA and said, uh, somebody left. You got to come and audition. You have to come now. Today. I got my car and drove 40 miles <clears throat> for this edition. I had to sing a song and do a bunch of jokes and things like that. I got in. So I'm in this show with all these really funny people. An amazing Having a great cast. time. Basically abandoned my master's work. I don't go to any more classes. Wow. But, you know. Just on that one day. You, what? On that one day. No, you from went then to, on. I mean, you went to the audition that day and that was it. That was it. Then wow. I was, I went back and did the, handed in my final papers and thesis stuff, basically like, you know, <laughs> plugging my ears and giving it to them like, this is pure shit. I hope you guys enjoy reading this. <laughs> and then... um but I was doing rehearsals all day for that, and then a show at night, and then basically I, I, I was done. I had no interest in going back there at all, except my mother's, David, you can never be a quitter. <laughs> so I had to go and finish up right. and clean up. Right. And one of the things I had to do for my master's, I had to do an a annotated a, a edition of Troilus and Cressida from an original quarto which is just so tedious. 
So I had, I was making money in this show, and I was already I'd already written some comedy scripts and taken them to CBC and sold them. So I was, I was selling comedy scripts too, and um, and I I paid a typist to type up this manuscript from Toilets and Crest, and I said just type in the top half because I'll need the bottom half for annotation. Hmm. Which I would just do handwritten. The mm-hmm. top half was typed, bottom half handwritten. Just like, why didn't you type it all? Just take it. <laughs> so um, I remember this guy's name was Hammond. He was a British professor. And I got a note from him saying, come and see me after I'd handed it in. And I go in and he says, takes my paper and he tosses it in front of me. He said, what am I supposed to make of this? I don't know. What do you want to make of it? And he says, <laughs> "You had nothing to lose." <laughs> no, he says, "This looks like you. This is your year's work. It looks like you. At most, you maybe spent, you know, a month on it." And I said, "Well, if you really want to know the truth, it took me two nights." <laughs> I said, "I paid a typist to type it, and I did." And he looked at me, and he was astounded. And he said, "You're not a serious student." I said, "You're telling me." <laughs> I said, "You haven't seen me in any classes, so how, you know." And he said, well, he said, I admire what you've done here in two nights. He said, it's remarkable for two nights, but completely unacceptable for your master's degree. He said, if you promise me that you will never go on in English literature beyond this point, I'll give you a B minus, which (laughs) won't get you in any good schools, but will allow you to pass and get your degree. And I said, deal. And it wrapped it up right there. Gone. (laughs) <laughs> and then Godspell closed and I, I couldn't get any work as an actor in Toronto and um, I got one commercial for Ontario Hydro where I played a guy pushing a power a sailing boat into overhead power lines and getting electrocuted <laughs> as a warning to people not to do that <laughs> and, an auspicious and, debut yeah. yeah and that was it and I think I got like a hundred bucks it was like a special business tax or something like that <laughs> So I couldn't make any money. So I, I wasn't going to be a waiter who said he was an actor. So I I went through the phone book and I made up a bunch of fake ads. And then I went through the yellow pages, which is what you did back then, looking for work, under ad agencies. And, by the, and I called every ad agency and applied. By the time I got to the M's, I got a job at McCann Erickson. I got who were hired. the biggest guys? Yeah, and I got hired by this really, really sharp writer named Harry Yates, who had worked at Doyle Dane Burnback in New York on the the award-winning Volkswagen campaigns, which were back at that time, you know, heralded in advertising as, yeah. you know, Clio award-winning spectacular stuff. So anyway, he says, I remember the memo he sent around. He said, he said he knows nothing about writing, referring to me, but no, he knows nothing about advertising. But he knows how to write. Hmm. Take care of this kid. <clears throat> so then I'm put on the Coca-Cola account doing basically their retail stuff, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. It's like print ads for bottles <laughs> in the retail market. And they're in this bottling war making trying to make taller molds <clears throat> than Pepsi so that they can lure customers by going, look, we're offering more product. Right. And um, and then one of the spot, one of the things I had to do was this really cheesy contest called Capital Caps. 
and it had a TV spot attached to it. But with Coca-Cola, they're very legal, and I got 28 and a half seconds of legal copy for a 30-second spot. So there was really no wiggle room there. But I remembered this bit that Don Knotts used to do on the old Tonight Show with Steve Allen, which was he played this weatherman <clears throat> with a complicated series of like uh, charts and things like that that he had to pull down and breakaway pointers and things like that. So this physical shtick to count, play counterpoint to the 28 and a half seconds of legal copy. So I write this, and Harry says, this is great, but Coca-Cola's never going to buy this, you know, unless you go up to them and sell it. So I went, you have to go and perform it, and then they'll get it. So I went, all right. So I went up and performed it. And the guys at Coke loved it, and they said, who do you want to do this? And I I didn't even thought of that. And I said, Tim Conway. <laughs> <clears throat> a week later, I was on a plane to L.A. to shoot this spot with Tim Conway. Wow. Now I'm sort of like approaching showbiz obliquely, Mm-hmm. From another angle, from advertising. And I'm on the set with Tim. I got photos of me on the set with him. And um, and then that particular commercial took off. It was really popular. Wow. And so Coca-Cola said, we love that kid. <clears throat> we want you to fire the head writer for Coke Canada and put him on as head writer for Coke Canada. So McCann did what the client said, and I ended up doing that. And... I'm only doing that for three months or so. And at that time, Canada was doing their own spots because there was this sort of nationalism thing where Canada wouldn't take the American spots. They were, we don't need your Norman Rockwell, eh? We got our own small towns. So, right. you know, um, I got to do some spots. And then this guy who ran Coke Creative out of McCann in New York sees a couple of these spots. And he says, I love that kid. I want that kid down here. I'm on a plane to New York now, going to meet Bill Backer, the guy who did the Hilltop commercial, Teach the World to Sing. Right. Came up with Things Go Better with the Coke, and it's the real thing, Coke. And I walk into his office on Madison Avenue. No, Lexington. They weren't Mm -hmm. on Madison. They were on Lex. And it was like a beautiful office with a grand piano and Persian rugs and everything. And there's this little guy in a gray suit with a a little... uh, Bow tie. Bow tie. <laughs> and I sit down. And he starts quoting Shakespeare. Wow. And it's like, what the hell is this? So so I had just done a, a degree in Shakespeare like a year and a half before, you know. So I started quoting it back. Well, that was all I needed to do. I became his golden boy just based on that. Wow. Not based on my writing ability or anything. So... He says to me, "Do you know? Have you ever written a jingle?" One thing in advertising is you never say no. Right. He's just like, "Yes, I have. I need you to write a jingle for me, and it's got to be bouncy and light, and it's got to." I just I see kids. I see young kids drinking coke, and a nice light bouncy jingle. So I said, "All right." So I went off and wrote a jingle, and then he sent me to England to shoot the kids. It was like, <clears throat> aren't there beautiful kids in America? You know, <laughs> but it was just because it was his whim that he wanted to do it in England. Mm. You know, so he teamed me up with an art director from New York, and now I'm on a plane to England. And so I was doing this for two years, 
and kind of forgot about showbiz. Hmm. I jacked my salary up pretty high over the course of those two years. And you're a very young guy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, making serious greenbacks for that time, you know. And then I heard Second City was opening in Toronto. And that was something that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And there had been a company that had opened, and I'd seen it on um, in Toronto, but they couldn't get a liquor license and it wasn't air-conditioned. And they ended up closing because it was just too oppressively hot mm-hmm. and horrible for the audience. Then they opened another one. And I got a call from Eugene Levy again, and he said, they're auditioning, get down here. An addition. I was in New York. I said, I'll be there as fast as I can. <laughs> and uh, got on a plane, went there, an addition, got the job. Then I go to my boss <clears throat> at McCann, because I'm still officially a Toronto guy on loan to New York. Mm-hmm. And he was, he became president of Interpublic, which is the company that owns McCann mm-hmm. and a bunch of other ad agencies. They ended up expanding and buying doing that thing that corporate America did. Yes. Just getting bigger and bigger. Voracious. And uh, I, he said, you're quitting? Why? Why? We, we'll, we're we're going to make you a creative director in a year. And I said, well, I'm 26. I don't want to be a creative director at that age. And I said, that's as far as I want to go in advertising. And if I get there at 26, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? <laughs> Defend my turf and pretend everyone else's ideas are mine? Mm-hmm. Because I'd seen guys doing that, you know. and Using uh, you for that, yeah. What? Using you for that. Yeah. yeah, well, I didn't get any credit for the jingle that I wrote for Bill Backer. We won a Cleo for that, but my name wasn't on it. Mm-hmm. His name was on it. So um, anyway, he said, how much are you making there? And I said, 145 bucks a week. <laughs> and he said, Jesus Christ, you're making 75 grand a year here, and you're going to trade that for 100 I said, it's what I want to do. He said, Go take a year. Get mm. it out of your system. If you want to come back in a year, you got your job here. And then, of course, I never went back. And Second City Stage became SCTV. And SCTV became Bob and Doug McKenzie. Well, it changed your life. You know? Oh, totally. A- and everyone in the cast. One of the most fantastic things about SCTV was it was do it yourself. I mean, you guys wrote everything, performed everything. It was the inmates running the asylum, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was for a network, but it seems like it was completely homemade. Mm-hmm. And you created all of these characters. I mean, Doug and Bob McKenzie, most notably, probably is the one that you might be most thought of when people think of SCTV. But you were also the only guy who did Bob Hope. Well, the impersonation started because we couldn't afford guest stars. So (laughs) Joe Flaherty did the first one. He did, I think, Peter O'Toole. Uh And then everyone kind of went, oh, okay. So the first impersonation I did was Richard Harris because I could do his dialect. Oh, yeah. And I noticed that he had two voices. He had a, a low voice down here that he would do. And a very high voice up here, and no <laughs> voice in between. So he was an audio—he was an audio guy's nightmare. You see the guy with the headphones, and then all of a sudden the needle starts bending as he goes into his high voice. So I just played around with Richard Harris, 
at first. And I had no concept that I was going to do Bob Hope or any other impersonations. But, you know, necessity is the mother invention. Next thing I know, I'm doing Walter Cronkite, who was infinitely doable because that's the way that growling voice, you know. And, and, and I had an ear. <clears throat> and I think if you have an ear, you can, you can do things like that. I did Bob Hope. I, I used to fool around doing Bob Hope because I was obsessed with the fact that Bob, Bob's two interests were golf and war. <laughs> and, and pretty much nothing else. Yeah. And uh, so Brian Doyle Murray, who was writing for SCTV in that time, the two of us got together and we and That's wrote, Bill Murray's brother. Yeah. yeah. And who's an actor and in, in, in known in his own right, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Brian and I wrote this uh, piece called the Bob Hope Desert Classic, but it was set in the Middle East. And it was Bob bringing, you know, like Nixon and Arafat and Begin and Arafat together and, and over golf. And, uh, and, then, and then it was like, now I got to do Bob. And we had these really brilliant makeup and hair people, um, Bev Shackman and Judy Cooper Sealing. I'm sitting in a makeup chair and I'm saying, Bev's putting this little ski jump nose prosthetic on the end of my nose. And I said, I can't really do his voice. And I and and I said he has a he has a bigger chin than me. His chin sticks out. And uh, she said, "Well, I can't put a chin piece on you because if I do, you talk, it'll fall off." She said, "Why don't you just stick your chin out?" And I I when the minute I stuck my chin out, it gave me this little cup, this little bo- and then all of a sudden I found this spot where where Hope's voice resonates, and it it becomes his. You know, it's his voice. It's a lady. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and all of a sudden, I found that spot that allowed me to do him to the point where, cut to years later, I get a call from the producers of the Academy Awards, and they said, we're doing this special thing with Billy Crystal and a hologram of Bob Hope, but we've changed the dialogue, and we need you to fill in as an exact match to Bob's, because we'll be going from Bob's voice to your voice to Bob's voice. So it's got to be right on. I said, ah, I think I can do that. <laughs> so I went and did that. So, <clears throat> you know, it went from sitting in the makeup chair being fearful and not thinking I could do it at all to having the makeup woman kind of coach me into a way where I find a spot in my, and now, now all of a sudden, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then <clears throat> I end up being on Bob Hope shows with Bob Hope, meeting Bob Hope, spending wow. time with Bob. And uh, I was on Bob's 90th birthday special, which was wow. it's a gigantic event at NBC with jets flying over oh and generals and presidents. And <sighs> and I'm there as Chester Hope, his nephew. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the producers say, you got to come down this ramp after you do your bit. Come down this ramp. Bob and Dolores are going to be sitting at a table. And he won't know you. He won't be able to hear you. He won't get up. But uh, just wave and walk off. I said, why Why don't I just walk off stage then? Why am I going down the ramp? Because everyone's doing it. All right, all right. So <laughs> I walk down the ramp. And Hope gets up. 
and walks over to me. I didn't expect this, and neither did they, because you're aware when you're in a live situation like that. In your, you know, I'm looking at hope, but in my peripheral vision, I see the cameras repoing, mm-hmm. and I just go, "Okay, those guys are on the move." And so hope comes up to me and stands beside me. So we got a fifty-fifty for the two of us, and then there's overs. There's I can see my camera over his shoulder, and there's I can feel the other one over my shoulder for him. And so we're talking. He said, David, sometime since I saw you up in Toronto there. He's like, not only got me, but he knows where I'm from. So he's like 90, but he still remembers me. So everything Don Misher, the producer, said was wrong. (laughs) And now I'm talking to Hope. And it's totally improvised. But he does something weird. He counters. He moves his body a little bit. So he's blocking me from my camera, the one that shoots over his shoulder Mm -hmm. at me. And I think, oh, he's old, he's screwed up, he just lost his balance. So I counter. So I got my camera again. <clears throat> and then he counters again. <laughs> now I know he's doing it on purpose. He's blocking you. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, you old bastard. <laughs> so I, I needed an out to get out of there and look good because I'm with Bob Hope and I got to, you know, this is a moment that I've been looking for my whole life. So I said to him, hey, Bob, I can do something with my ski jump nose that you can't do. And he looks at me seriously. He's very competitive. You know, he goes, oh, yeah, what's that? And I took the little prosthetic piece and I just ripped it off and handed <laughs> it to him. And he burst out laughing. And that was it. You got Bob Hope to We're laugh. We're out. That's great. Well, suddenly with SCTV, and it was part of the Canadian content ruling, you had to do two minutes of Canadian content. And so you and Rick Moranis come up with Doug and Bob McKenzie. And all that was was ad-libbing for two minutes to meet the requirements of the CD, uh, CBC. Right. So, so, But it becomes a sensation, probably your most popular characters at that time on the show. Suddenly you're being recognized everywhere you go. To, how did that feel to be identified with this character? Well, it was a different audience than the SCTV audience. Hmm. Because we did the album with Getty Lee from Rush. Right. And now all of a sudden, we got these metal headbangers as our audience. So that people that recognized us from SCTV would come up. they go, hi, how are you? We're fans of SCTV. Very pleased to meet you. The people that recognized Bob and Doug would just go, <laughs> raise their fists in the air and just go, have a beer, eh? You know, and it was like, oh man, talk about <laughs> hitting a different audience. <laughs> That's for sure. And I remember we, Rick and I were, we did this whirlwind tour. The album went gold, then it went platinum, then it went double platinum, and then we were like, holy shit. And so we're doing all these shows, talk shows, and we're in limos driving around. As and, these characters? Yeah. Yeah. And we were in two funny stories on that. One's in Chicago, and there was this guy named Steve Dahl, who was a pioneer of a new type of radio at that time. Kind of like uh, Howard uh, Stern. Stern. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're on the Steve Dahl show. While we're there, they said, um, John Hurt is in the next studio, you know, from Aliens. and yeah. He'd just done a uh, Disney movie where he escapes from behind the Iron Curtain in a balloon with some kids or something. Anyway, 
he's in the next studio. And so one of the bits we had done on SCTV, I had played the elephant man. Mm -hmm. And the premise of that bit was just that um, <clears throat> the <laughs> SCTV was always a, the network was always broken on the verge of, <laughs> of bankruptcy. So they were doing studio tours as a way of getting money. And the studio tours were kind of like, I remember when we were writing this in the writing room, I said, I want like um, two guys, native Canadians, like um, that dress like Billy Jack in those cowboy hats and denim <laughs> to be, to see the line of people outside the studio and just go, hey, what's going, what's going on here? Yeah, what's going on here? Anyways, well, it's a line for studio sure. How much? How much do it cost? Oh, it's free. You go and, or it's a buck or something. Like that. Oh, okay. So they join the line. So they see the Elephant Man and they end up like rushing him for his autograph. He becomes frightened and runs from them. And then it becomes like the movie where people were chasing, you know, uh, John Merrick down the streets right. because he was a, a freak and they either wanted to beat him up or embarrass him you know the the the, the lowest most horrible aspect of mankind yes. that that movie played up so here we are at steve Dahl's radio station and john hurts in the room so they they bring him in and they go hey john this is dave thomas and rick Ranch. they do a show called sctv hey they did an elephant man parody on on sctv it was hilarious you should see it people were chasing him around the studio and and um john hurt kind of looks at us and goes well, I personally never found anything particularly funny about the plight of John Merrick. Oh. But I suppose he, God willing, now may have a sense of humor about it and may find something funny in it after passing, but I, for one, don't. And Ow. the DJs just look at him and go, yeah, and they get a toque uh, and put it on his head. Oh. And shove him between us and take a pick. Oh, God. And that was like one of the most horrible <laughs> but brilliantly funny, awkward moments oh, of God. my career. Ouch. To be in that photo. I, I don't have that photo. I wish I had that photo. Oh. But it was just, I'm sure his face was all snarly. And, <laughs> and the two of us were just stunned, you know. And we were literally led around by the nose on that tour. Mm -hmm. The other story I was going to do, that was part one. Part two is, in New York, we were at some, I forget, some place on Long Island, my my father's place or my mother's place, something like that. At 9.30 or 10 in the morning, and there were like 800 kids there, and they were drunk. Oh, they were God. already drunk oh. at 10 a.m. Oh. And there was so much noise in there, and we were doing a simulcast, that there was no way... Any audio could be heard. All they wanted us to do was chug beers. Oh. <laughs> and they didn't even want to hear what we had to say. So, like I said, the Bob and Doug audience was different, radically different from the SCTV audience. And yet know? really large. And this afforded you the opportunity to become a writer and director of the feature film Strange Brew. So... I mean, it's a... Again, that was an accident. Yeah. Because the director that they hired, they fired. MGM fired the director. Really? And then said, you two guys are going to direct it. Makes sense. And I remember going to Jack Grossberg and saying, 
if we fuck up, can you take over? <laughs> and Jack said, uh, don't think like that. You guys are going to be great. It's going to be terrific. You he know? was a veteran producer. Veteran yeah. producer. Yeah. He he was first AD on The Heart of They Fall with Bogart. His first AD on, on the waterfront Amazing. For, uh, with Marlon and has great Marlon Brando stories from that early in Marlon's career. And then he did, you know, Missouri Breaks and uh, The Hospital, George C. Scott. Oh, yeah, and, sure. And so this is the guy they put with us just to make sure we didn't screw up. He was one of the old lines of Hollywood that could have delivered this film easily without either us as cast or <laughs> us as directors. But you directed your first movie yeah. with Rick, which led to a career as a screenwriter, teleplay writer, and director that continues to this day well truth be told i was already i was actually writing screenplays right prior to that right when i first came to la uh to work in 78 it was to write a adaption of a calvin trillin book called runestruck for columbia pictures Mm. and that was at the time that they they were shooting 1941 oh yeah and i was on we're on the same lot and um Harold and um, Doug Kinney were doing prepping Caddyshack. Harold Ramis. Yeah. Also, on the, right, on the same lot. So it was a lot of fun. And yeah. our offices were in those long buildings that Warner, that's Warner Brothers now, the producers' buildings. We were two doors down from Jimmy Kahn and his brother, who were just like doing so much blow. It was just beyond <laughs> okay. belief that anyone could do that much blow and not die. And... Um, but they were hilarious and fun to hang out with. Mm. And uh, and then I got a job doing a film for Joel Silver, a script, and then I got a job. I did that too. <laughs> yeah. With Joel. That was an interesting experience. He was crazy. He was working for, oh, the guy who produced uh, um, Field of Dreams, Larry Gordon. Right. He was working right. for Larry Gordon at Paramount. And uh, Joel was insane. He was crazy. But uh, I've got Hollywood. my own stories too. Uh, yeah, that. yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, and but, it was just great. It was to me. It was like, oh man, this is so great. I got all these opportunities, and <clears throat> and then I got moved off that picture, the silver picture, to work on Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd, right? So and John Landis, yeah. And we were on the lot. When Hitchcock was still coming to the office every day. We yeah. saw him and actually went up and introduced ourselves one time. I, I think he uh, just kind of nodded and walked off. You know, mm-hmm. He wasn't interested. But, um, yeah, it was just so much fun. But then you've become a filmmaker. You're, you're, you've given this opportunity, and that led to The Experts, which is a big budget studio movie with John Travolta. Didn't he meet his wife, Kelly Preston, on that movie? I introduced him, yeah, because I'd done a movie with Kelly as an actor uh, before that when Kelly was going with George Clooney. Uh Ah, who used to live right next door. Yeah. Small world, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, anyway, um, yeah, well, tell me the experience as a director, how that differed from what you had been doing in SCTV and the other things with, you know, the Doug and Bob movie uh, and all. So, Well, we, we kind of, we didn't direct SCTV. There was a guy named John Blanchard who did that. Right. But we were there with him, kind of riding shotgun with it, because we wanted to make sure that we got the comedy values of what we were going for. 
John was excellent at kind of taking a look at the Godfather and trying to get the lighting for our parodies the same and things like that, which I, none of us knew anything about lighting or mm -hmm. anything, any of the technical things. Um, but we knew about performance and, and what we wanted to get out of the values of the performance. And that, strictly speaking, is, is, my, is my only calling card ever to having the right to be a guy directing a film. Mm. I'm not like a, a cinematic guy. I wasn't shooting films like Spielberg when I was a kid. You know, I, right. I'm not a cutter. I, I, I know how to edit, but it's only a learned skill from people like our mutual friend, Pat McMahon teaching right. me. Right. But, um, uh, but I, but back, back, the, you know what the deal was. If you had any kind of heat or a hit, you could you could claim to be whatever you wanted to be, and my agents were very aggressive in saying Dave Thomas should direct, Dave Thomas should direct, and until you fuck it up, you can keep doing. Which it. I did with <laughs> the experts because oh. it wasn't a box office hit. It was like right at that point in John's career where nobody wanted to see a movie with John Travolta. So, um, but there's something special about the experts in that you're directing a movie that you're not performing with. Yeah, in. and so this is it seems to me a different part of your career. And I'm, I'm interested in how that felt to be going in as the director rather than as the creator and or performer. Well, it was challenging. And that was about, that was about a $20 million budget. And, um, which back then was a lot of money. Yeah. And so you're responsible for it, but you've got the studio breathing down your neck. I was very aware of that because the studio was breathing down our neck on Strange Brew, which was my first job, mm -hmm. you know. And and Rick wasn't there for post. Rick went off and did Streets of Fire as an actor while I was posting Strange Brew. So I did all of the post alone on the MGM lot. So I was editing there. I was working with Jack brought on some of the Douglas Trumbull guys to help us with blue screen stuff and matte paintings and so on and so forth. So now I'm getting like an education from these guys the technical who, aspects the technical of aspect which i really knew nothing about mm. you know um one of the things i did with strange brew when we got that job i i knew that we didn't neither rick or i knew the lenses or really knew how to shoot but i knew that bob and doug was a cartoon so i hired this guy named paul chadwick who was a cartoonist who knew how to do s s cartoon storyboards and he could do these, I made him do these storyboards. I remember doing stick drawings with him and working. I did the storyboards with Paul, and we shot a lot of the movie right according to the storyboards. Mm. Now, there, are, of course, are always times when you get to the set and they move that thing, and now your storyboards don't work, and you got, but at least it's forced you to go through it once right. so that you have an idea of what you need to do to cover the scene. And I started to get an understanding of coverage and what was essential and what was sort of arty. And mm -hmm. I never really went in for the arty stuff because I wasn't skilled or accomplished enough. To you didn't be able feel to... confident in that. Yeah. No, that, you know, and, and occasionally we were talking at lunch where I told you that I did this TV movie and John Kassar was the Steadicam guy and he came up with a, a single shot where we covered an entire scene in one and he was able to get his focus puller to full focus and cover get everything 
in one shot. Well, I mean, a lot of really good directors would design that, and I got credit for that because my Steadicam operator came up with it on the set. <laughs> he told it to me, and I went, I like this guy. He's smart. Let's do what he says. You know, so... I learned about lenses. I learned about responsibility. I learned about politics. Mm. I learned that there are some people on the crew sometimes that are problems. And you have to figure out how to deal with that, you know. And, and Jack Roseberg was very helpful in kind of educating me. But there were times when I had to be, you know, I had to have the guts to You're stand You're the captain up. of the ship, yeah. Yeah. And you have to make captain decisions, you know. And when you lose stuff, when, you know, you'll go to a particular location and what you need isn't there or it's changed or uh, some dynamic is different, then you you got to be ready to go on the fly and make different choices. Roll with the punches, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I wrote some pilots for hour-long film pilots for... Um, CBS, and uh, I was exec producer on those, not mm -hmm. director. Mm -hmm. And I did one with a guy named Jim Frawley, who's famous for the the bus, was it? The, the big bus. The big bus. Yeah. And Jim was a very egocentric, grandiose kind of a guy. Oh, my. And he always referred to this as my cast, my crew, my people. <laughs> We're putting the first-person possessive pronoun in front of everything i kind of noticed that i kind of went eh, i don't know do you need to do that so anyway um we had this shot <laughs> this was about a robot who is a fifth generation computer robot who can make its own decisions and think for itself that was originally created by the uh, robotics company for the army when the army found out that the robot could think for itself, they said, no, take it apart. We don't want it. We already got soldiers that think for themselves. We want robots that do what we tell them to do <laughs> without question. So this robot escapes with the help of its creator uh, and does a picaresque trip across the country to go to see the president of the United States to ask if he can keep his brain. So there's a little bit of Wizard of Oz there. <laughs> and Stan Winston did the basic robotics for me. And I got very lucky as producer to get at a time when Katzenberg and, and uh, um, Eisner had just taken over Disney. Mm -hmm. And Webb, which is the company that does all the robotics for the theme parks, had been a closed shop to the rest of the business up to that point. And Katzenberg and Eisner said, no, let's open the doors. Let's, uh, so I was one of the first guys in to say, I need to have a robotics lab for a shot in this and I got no budget for it what can you do to help me and I so I got the robot hands and arms and we built we paid a couple for some robot machines working on one two and three axis movements so as we were panning through we would do this one movement there because we we're gone before it would do the second movement mm -hmm. do you know what I mean yeah, and only yeah. the third machine down there was on a three axis movement but it but it was like learning this stuff as a producer, <clears throat> but sort of sitting on the shoulders of the director to make sure that you got it all, you know? Right, right. And so we had this scene with uh, that opens the movie where the robot's swimming and gets attacked by a shark, and he drags it in 
and it's like a 20-foot great white. Mm. So we shot it out in Malibu. And the guys who built the shark, the special effects guy, they built a big rubber shark, but they put it in a steel frame so that it wouldn't come apart. <laughs> like water. Bruce did in Jaws, yeah. Yeah. And then the premise was that the guy who played the robot, Charles Rocket, was supposed to, when they tell him that you got to put the shark back, then he just picks it up like this and throws it into the ocean. <laughs> and so Frawley wanted to do this all in one. The director wanted to do this all in one. I said, that's dangerous. That That's a big 20-foot shark. It's got a steel frame. How are you going to get, how are you going to do that all in one? He said, well, I've talked to the effects guys. Now, I don't trust I love effects guys, but I don't trust them because they always overstate the game. Or at least they did with me in my mm -hmm. limited experience with them. Now I'll be getting some poison pen mail from <laughs> effects guys. But anyway, they were going to blow the shark with an air mortar into the water. Oh, okay? good luck. Yeah. So there were four or five cameras set up for this. For a TV show. This Frawley's making it an, an opus, you know. And right. He, he was very much into directing, looking over his shoulder to watch it. Did a lot of pilots, him. yeah. And so I was like, Jim, I don't think it's a good idea. You have to let me do this. This is, a, this is my shot. This is my shot for my show. I'm like, okay, okay. So he does it. But what happens is there's a fuck up. And the air mortar goes off before the cameras are rolling. The stunt guy who was filling in for the actor barely gets out of the way to avoid being blown to shit by this air mortar oh, and the air mortar literally blows this 20 foot shark into about 50 pieces <laughs> oh, like it disintegrates got and it in one <laughs> one of the cameramen for a camera that was in the sand dove down and flipped his switch just as the thing went off and um then I knew as a producer what was happening here. Now I got to make my day. That's mm -hmm. another part of the business that you know, that you're a director and you're not just responsible for getting your best performance. You're not just responsible for making sure all the lighting and the shots look good, but you're also responsible for getting the required number of pages the day that you make your day so you stay on schedule and on budget. Exactly. So I knew now that what happens when an effect like this goes wrong, something big, that everybody's going to stand around and talk about it for two hours. Mm -hmm. And so I said, um, all right, they start. The effects guy's walking up. He's going, that should not have happened. I go, yeah. like, <laughs> like Too, uh, Not much we can do about that now. So, so I said, Get everyone in the get everything in the trucks. Get everything out of here. We're going to the pier. We're going to throw the. We're going to do have somebody in a boat. We're going to throw a little shark over over the camera, and we're going to do this in three pieces. And I said, so I need the the takeaway piece here, the close on the actor on the beach. Do this. That's the only thing we're going to shoot here. And that and and Frawley was stunned, and he was just standing there. And I basically took over, and I said, we're going to do this, and then we're going to the pier, and then we're going to do that, and that's how we're going to make our day. Okay, let's go now. Now, chop chop, everybody move. Mm. And so there's those moments right. where when something happens and you're the producer or the director and you're in charge. And in television, when you're the executive producer, you're kind of, that's the same as in terms of your ability to call the shots, the same as director in film. Right. And so 
You got to think on your feet. Yeah. yeah, and I like that. That's a challenge, and that's fun. Sometimes it's scary, and I've been in situations where I don't get all the pieces I need for editing, and I know I don't. And I'm leaving the location. I'm going, what am I going to do? Hmm. What am I going to do? How am I going to cut this together? And you know there's missing pieces, but you have to leave the location, and it's it's terrible. Let's talk about scary. You told me the story of seeing The Exorcist for the first time. And uh, tell me again about that experience. Well, The Exorcist was a very, for its time, a very shocking and cleverly crafted movie. It used sound and visuals in a way that made the audiences throw up in the theaters. <laughs> but you stumbled upon it by I, accident. I was driving by with my girlfriend, and I saw this line at the University Theater in Toronto. I said, we got to get in this line. She said, do you know what it's for? And I said, no, but look, it's a, it's a long line. These people are, they must have heard about something. Let's get in the line and find out what it is. <laughs> so we get in the line, and it's winter, so it's cold, and we see people coming out of the theater, and they're ashen, and they're like, talking about people who threw up in the theater and were like, whoa, what? What is this? Is this The Exorcist? I don't know what that is. And, you know, well, I had heard none of the hype or none of the press about it. And uh, as we're moving into the theater, you know, there's that dustbane stuff that the janitorial services use to cover up throw up. I remember there was a kid that used to throw up in my class when I was in Durham, North Carolina. I remember that smell. And that Uh. smell is in the theater. Oh, Jesus. I went, oh, my God, people really were throwing up here, you know. So we sit in our seats, and the opening thing is in Iraq, and it's very disorienting and loud and lots of sounds, dogs barking and strange music, and Max von Sydow looking at these obelisks, these these statues. And and I... and. and then, um, and then it gets real quiet in Georgetown, and then all of a sudden the sound starts to build again. And the point at which that sequence, which I'll never forget, it's one of the most horrific f- sequences I ever saw in film, where they you hear the, and the bed going up and down, and then, and then the mother's running up the stairs. What's that? Alan Burstyn is running up the stairs, and. And she goes in the door, and Reagan is on the bed, sticking a cross in and out of her vagina, and she turns her head in a circle. And oh no, I know what it is. She's sticking across in her vagina, and then Ellen Burstyn comes in the door, and then the door shuts, and then the dresser <laughs> moves in front of it so she can't get out, and then. The head spins around, and it's like, how do you like your cunting daughter now? And it's like, oh, my God. I'd never heard words like that. And this is like, this is like, oh, <laughs> this is horrible. It's beyond belief. And then, and then the dresser comes down on her, and the head spins around. And this girl I was with turned to me, and she said, Dave. And I was like, I looked at her, what? And she said, you have goosebumps on your face. <laughs> and I was so terrified that I literally was sitting there with goosebumps on my face. Now, as I told you at lunch, I was offended and angry at the theology of this. And and that is, and it's kind of a basic Catholic theology, and that is that the devil can operate directly in the world and defy the laws of physics and make Reagan's bed go up and down and make her head spin around. 
But God, oh no, he doesn't work like that. God works indirectly through us, his stupid puppets that have to get thrashed and, and, and killed in, in trying to fight the evil for God, for the side of good. That really pissed me off and made me angry. And I took Eugene Levy and Marty to see that the next night. Oh, how I great. It, I saw it two nights in a row. And Eugene came out of that theater and said, that movie should never have been made. He was horrified. So then, as comedy people, you start doing jokes about, you know, and I start doing my impersonations of the backwards tape stuff and the and that deep voice. That's like making those sounds come out of a little girl is nobody had done that in film before. No. And it was like it was it was amazingly horrific and beyond anything that I'd ever seen, you know? And I was like, holy God. So I, I came out of that you know, a wet dish rag. You know? <laughs> well, people don't, probably most people don't know that you've been a writer and producer on Blacklist and Bones and other TV series and the like. But I'm also curious about, and we need to wrap it up pretty quick, but about your work as an actor for hire. You did five years on the sitcom Grace Under Fire and lots of other things like that. The things that you don't create that you're there to portray somebody else's idea of what this character was or created and an actor for hire that you've done so much. You've done a lot of voiceover work for animation, including the Doug and Bob uh, TV cartoon. Right. But uh, tell me about that, where you're not behind the creative process until the character is in your hands. I was a pretty shitty actor for hire, <laughs> which I think you can see by the limited amount of it that I actually did. Mm. I, I I didn't ever think I was particularly good. And even in things that I wrote and directed, I would often look at my own performance and go, you know, the smart money would have put another guy in there instead of you, Dave. Mm. And 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 that's the truth. Mm. Um I I I thought I was better as an actor on SCTV than I was in stuff that I did after SCTV. Because I was more in the game at that point. Uh, I I was a very distracted actor. And one of the things that you don't realize is that the camera's watching you. When you blow somebody's face up 35 times its size, if you're thinking about something else other than the scene you're in, it'll read. Yeah. You'll see it in your eyes. You'll see it in your face, you know? And I remember um, my wife used to caution me when I was doing Grace Under Fire. They whip the audience into a frenzy there before the show and tell the audience, you're going to laugh. You're part of the show. We're counting on your laughter. So the audience laughs at things that aren't funny. And that really pissed me off. Mm -hmm. I, that made me angry. And I remember Kim took me aside and she said, Dave, you got to watch your face. I said, why? She said, because camera's on you. And when something gets a laugh that you don't think is funny, your face like twitches. You get like... <laughs> you get an angry little twitch in your face. And I said, really? She said, yeah. And I said, oh shit, I didn't know that. And I said, cause I'm thinking that. So that's probably why that's happening. You know? So I don't know. I, I did, I did a lot of, and this is a horrible thing to admit on a show like this, but I did a lot of that acting for the money. Cause you get paid more to be an actor 
than you do to do your own stuff. Mm. When you're going to a studio, like, this is my idea. I really want to do this. Boy, do they shave you down. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. You really, yeah. you really pay the price for wanting to do something. But when it's the other way around, when they want you to be in something, uh, you can call your own shots, you know? So, Well, let's wrap it up talking about the things that have given you the most pleasure over this very long career that you're continuing. Well, um, I got a lot of pleasure sitting with Rick Moranis doing the McKenzie Brothers because we, mm. we were flying by the seat of our pants and didn't know what we were going to say. None of it scripted. None of it scripted. And we got counted in by a floor director, and then he would look at me just be, while we are during the count. He'd go, have you got anything? And i help. And that was really fun, you know? Um Fun, th fun things I did as an actor or as a writer and a director? Overall, whatever has given you the most pleasure. I had a lot of fun writing with Dan Aykroyd. We wrote one thing that never got made where we traveled through Texas and talked to people who'd seen UFOs. And, and then when I wrote Spies Like Us with Dan, that was a real fun thing, bouncing ideas back and forth with him. I loved his mind, and it, 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 was, a, it was a wonderful collaboration. Um, I, I did a hospital movie that didn't get really any acclaim called white coats. And I, I put together a bunch of young kids that I thought were really good. And I did some stuff in that movie that I thought was really funny. Uh, it, I had a good time making that. Mm -hmm. And, um, let's see. I, I mean, I had a great time on bones as a writer. Mm -hmm. That was one of the most fun experiences I ever had in my career and uh and i thought those people were really wonderful to work with and i'd never been in a writing room where i wasn't in charge before and it was it was fun it yeah. was kind of uh, uh free i felt free I, not was, as much responsibility then yeah. no response you just <laughs> yeah. you just had to come up with ideas you know and what do you like to watch well i saw this thing a year ago called Mad Dogs, which is a series on... The British series, yeah. On, yeah. No, no. Was it British? There's a British series a that's Billy, great. They're Billy on Zane and, uh, and four actors, Steve Zahn. Oh, they go yeah, to yeah. some South American place that yeah. Billy Zane owns. Yes, that's fantastic. That was great. It was yeah. so dark and twisted, and, and it just went places you didn't expect. Yeah. I love that. I enjoy a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasms. Um, Larry David does stuff like his joke of he's on his way to a, a basketball game and the traffic is jammed, but the but the fast lanes are open, so he <laughs> picks up a hooker, a, a big, heavy set black woman, and uses her to get in the fast lane. But then he's stuck with her at the game, and it's just <laughs> it's a really funny. He does a lot of those things where he takes little things and plays them through, like gets. Uh, make America great again hat and then finds out that he can use it, you know, to make, to get out of doing things with his liberal <laughs> friends that he doesn't want to do. So I, I enjoy that, you know, um, I, I, it's usually weird stuff or like, you know, people say, have you seen stranger things? I watched the first few stranger things and I enjoyed it. But then towards the end, it started to get like goonies and it was all like little kids. and I didn't like it as much, you know, so, <laughs> I kind of lost interest in that. Uh, I loved the show Boston Legal 
because oh. William Shatner and James Spader's chemistry together in that show was just a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. And I thought and David Kelly's a great writer, and I thought he did he did a really fantastic job. That show, The Newsroom with Jeff Daniels. Oh yeah. There's one scene in that where somebody says, "Why is America the greatest country in the world?" And he gives this devastating answer about why it isn't it's brilliant and you know aaron sorkin can write that kind of stuff in his sleep and he's brilliant with it his comedy like studio 360 was terrible and he can't write comedy to save his life and (laughs) and and his concept that one guy could write a 90 minute sketch show by himself (laughs) uh, i thought what who's he been talking to that's so misguided it was insane well Dave, yeah. Dave Thomas, writer, producer, director, actor, impressionist, jack of all trades, and blabbermouth. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Postmortem. Pleasure. It's really great to have you. Good to be here, Mike. Thanks. Take care. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.